This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by This Is Not Church podcast and the letter F. And you. (laughs) (laughs) If you've made it this far, my name is Nat Turney, my brother John Turney, and I co-host This Is Not Church, the podcast. And this is sadly the level of discourse that you can expect to find if you tune in every Monday when we drop new episodes. But all joking aside, John and I see this as as an opportunity for us to address issues that we don't think are addressed nearly enough inside of evangelicalism. So LGBTQIA plus issues, BIPOC issues, social justice issues. We like to talk to a broad variety and range of people and really try to find places of commonality for everybody. So check out the podcast. Every Monday, our episodes drop. Wherever you stream podcasts, you can find us. Remember, this is not church. And to that, John says, Peace. A bisexual hairstylist who escaped a cult, a black mystic, and a recovering evangelical. What could go wrong? This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast with Lola Robbins, Kyle Butler, and Jason Elam. We've got an interview for you guys this week with Kevin Sweeney. Kevin wrote a book called The Making of a Mystic. His latest book is called The Joy of Letting Go. Kevin was the co-founder of Imagine Church Honolulu. And he is the host of a very awesome podcast. And I love this title of the podcast, The Church Needs Therapy. Welcome in to the Messy Spirituality Podcast, Kevin Sweeney. It's an honor to have you here. Thanks, man. Yeah, appreciate it, man. Doing some traveling. We're closer than we normally are. Normally, I would be 10 hours from you flying if you're in Florida from Hawaii. But now I'm in California, so now I'm just five, which is... (laughs) It's far, it's far, but it's closer than I normally am to people. All the way across the country, but not as far as you normally are. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's really cool to talk to you. I loved your first book, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But I'd really love to hear some of your spiritual backstory, if you're willing to talk about it. Were you raised in an atmosphere of faith? Yeah, that's such a good question. First of all, I just want to say I really, really appreciate you having me on. You know, from the first book to the second book, I don't take for granted these opportunities. I don't take for granted being invited and welcomed. And by invited, I mean like when I knock on the door of someone's podcast and they let me in because I reached out to them. So uh, yeah, first of all, I just want to say thank you to you. I know the co-hosts aren't here, so I'm super grateful to be here. And yeah, the backstory is important for everybody because you know Paula D'Arcy says God comes to you disguised as your life. And... The spirit is all, James, the great mystic, the great living mystic, James Finley says, you know, God always shows up autobiographically. And that's so true because it's the uniqueness of our stories, the shape of our story that allows the spirit to emerge and grow within us and around us in a specific way. And I'll tell people, I went to Catholic school first, second, and third grade. And then I stopped going. I went to public school, LA Unified School District. I grew up in the Los Angeles area. And in fourth grade, going to a public school where we can cuss and fight every day, for me, I was like, this is salvation. I made it. This is everything I've been waiting for. I was so happy. <laughs> and I soon after, soon after that, I stopped going to Mass. And the reason why I say that is, one... I left that experience in the Catholic church. Like it wasn't like I was 11 years old with some ideological stance of that's it, mom and dad. I'm no, we can't trust the Pope. There's no way this whole thing is, 
No, I just stopped going because I didn't want to as a kid. And my parents didn't push that on me, which I'm really grateful for. And I left that experience with what I would call a pleasant indifference. Wasn't mad, wasn't angry, no trauma, no negative experiences, no shame. It was just, this is something I'm not interested in. I'm not doing anymore. And it was, it was as if God, church, spirituality was essentially a non-issue for me. Right? I had, it wasn't really super positive. It wasn't extremely negative. It just was what it was. And for me, that was actually a really healthy starting point because I was never really raging against the machine. I didn't grow up with guilt and shame from youth groups, like all the stories later on when I became a Christian I heard about. And then 16, 17, 18 years old, my spiritual, my conscious spiritual quest really began with a radical, I mean, truly radical third person sense of self-awareness. Living my life and watching myself live my life and starting to ask the questions, why am I doing what I'm doing? I'm, be, I'm so driven in sports. Why am I so driven to do this? I got involved in, in music at a young age. Why am I, what is driving this? You know, I've been getting high every day since I was a little kid. Why am I getting high? Why do I need, why can't I sleep without, you know, at least smoking weed? What is, what is happening here? And then, you know, this is what I talk about in the book. You know, you mentioned The Making of a Mystic, my first book, the subtitle is my journey with mushrooms, my life as a pastor, and why it's okay for everyone to relax, which I just love and I love saying, by the way. It's such an awesome subtitle. There's not another one like it. (laughs) I mean, my first question when I was writing down questions for you, my first one was going to be, how do we get from mushrooms to pastor? Yeah, and that's, you know, uh, and there's actually, to me, that's a very quick, direct line, actually, because 16 or 17 or 18, as I'm starting to eat mushrooms and starting to, you know, experience psychedelics like that. I have a chapter in the book called Mushrooms as Missionaries. And it was essentially me saying in this, if, if the role of a missionary, right? So let, let's just, let's just have a little sidebar. Yes, that term missionary is caught up in this entangled knot of white supremacy, nationalism, colonization, exporting, manifest destiny, all these things that I'm sure the listeners agree with me are problematic and dangerous and we should all be doing our part to name dismantle so we can move forward better. Very aware of that. I'm with you on that. But the healthy part of that term missionary we can say is, well, the missionary is someone who is pointing someone further towards the fullness of life in Christ. And if that's the case, then mushrooms were the missionaries for me, pointing me beyond themselves to that which I wasn't sure existed, but hoped existed, which was truth, which was something real, which was what is happening here. And at 18, I had this spontaneous, instantaneous consciousness rewiring, life altering experience of God while I was on mushrooms. And from that moment, and I, I knew with, with limited religious language, without really that conscious, like thinking about the church, those types of things, I left that experience and said, this was a rebirth. And I, rem- I remember it was 4 a.m. I was at my girlfriend's house at the time, who's now my wife. We've been through a lot together. And my parents picked me up at 4 a.m. And I remember driving home that day. And I thought, you know, it's not that the thoughts that I'm having are different, although they are. It's actually that the very I, the very space from which these thoughts arise has been radically transformed. 
that's transformation of consciousness as opposed to just changing your beliefs. And I was very aware of what happened. And from that day on, I never did psychedelics again. I quit. I was supposed to play basketball in college. I quit basketball. I got offered a lot of money in music. I said, no, everything for me, it was a response to and born out of that moment. And a couple years later, I start going to church and I identify, oh, that which I encountered was fully present in, the, in this person I'm hearing in these stories in Jesus. And I felt a pastoral calling, even though I didn't even know that was a thing at that point. I didn't really know any Christians for the most part. And, you know, led me to a Bible college, eventually went to seminary and just kind of kept on going because I just was like, my life is about becoming the alarm clock to help people wake up to that, which to me is everything and holds everything and offers us everything we're looking for. So that's a little bit of the background, you know, unique story and something that I love so much how that all worked out. Very cool. Um, I wanted to ask you, I know that you talked about you know, the the Christianity of your earliest years being kind of, it wasn't the toxic stuff that so many of us grew up with that you probably had to deconstruct from. Was your experience at Bible college and seminary the same? Yeah, you know, I'll, here's a funny story. So I go to Bible college my first year. And the thing about this, like, I have pretty much never read the Bible. I don't, I have this profound awakening moment. So for me, spirituality from the beginning and life in Christ is direct experience of God and radical transformation. It wasn't dogma. It wasn't doctrine. It wasn't the atonement. It was direct knowing. That's all I knew. And when I go there and I'm like, you're learning about hermeneutics for the first time and you're learning about all like a classical, very fundamentalist, evangelical education, you know, not super fundamentalist like 1920s, but now what a lot of people would consider more fundamentalist. And it was great. I was excited. It was a cool experience. You know, they were four square, like people be talking about speaking in tongues here and healing people like it's nothing. This is an interesting experience. I've never heard these stories before. And at the end of my second year there in 2008, one of the kids said something to me. He said, Hey, I would be really careful how you talk here. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he said, well, if you keep talking like that, people are going to think you're emergent. <laughs> you know, for people who are familiar with the emerging church yeah. back then. And I had never heard that term because I wasn't familiar with any of like the evangelical subculture for the most part. And I said, whoa, I should really find out what that is. And so that <laughs> it sounds like fun. I was like, oh my goodness, I better at least know what the hell is just talking about. Right. So I went and read Tony Jones' book, The New Christians. And that summer was the summer I discovered that I can pretty much read nonstop. And I never knew that before because I didn't read growing up. And I just went from Tony Jones to Brian McLaren to Doug Padgett to everybody my professors would not want me to read to then reading theologians, you know, N.T. Wright and Walter Brueggemann and then et cetera, et cetera. And when I came back that year, I was like, okay, I'm in a different place than this school. I'm evolving and expanding beyond where they are. I'm going to offer my critiques, but at the same time, I'm just going to keep going with this. So I look back with great fondness from that while really quickly knowing, okay, I'm in a different place than a lot of these people are. I'm grateful they got me started, but to me, this keeps going and they're comfortable staying here. So that's okay. But I'm definitely going places they don't approve of, but I don't, I was really okay with that. So I wasn't like fighting people. I wasn't, 
trying to take down the school. I would be honest and offer my critiques, but at the same time, I was just so excited about continuing to grow that I just knew my life was far beyond what they were offering me there. It's really cool to hear somebody talk from a place. um, I, I don't know. I guess your faith just was never... Like you said, you had never really read the Bible. And so it wasn't just believing what someone else told you or what you had read in a book. You had an experience that you were living out of. And that's a totally different thing. You know, I mean, when I was a kid, we asked, we used to have these commercials on TV for the cassette tapes called uh, Memorex. And the, the tagline was, is it live or is it Memorex? Because they said the tape quality was so good that you could it could pass for live audio. But the problem was the the Memorex version was never as good as live. And after I made, you know, mixtapes for all my friends and the uh, I'd made a copy of a copy of a copy and it mm. became so diluted, the sound quality was terrible. Mm. Uh, I think that's a lot of what many of us have experienced in faith growing up. And somebody like you that just has a completely different perspective I just find that so refreshing. I'm so grateful that you had that experience. I think a difference I've seen, you know, in a lot of my peers and as I've gotten older and, you know, gone to seminary, obviously met a lot of Christians and friends with pastors. And I was, my wife and I had started and led a church for the past 10 years that we recently closed down. So of course I learned more even about publishing the Christian industrial complex, all that stuff. And what I realized is, deconstructing and moving through stages of faith and moving through stages of consciousness, if you keep growing, is universal. But what I'm grateful for is I never had to work out religious trauma. And I yet I know how real that is and how hard that is. Because when you grow up with that heavy-handed religion, like emotional, the emotional field of your home, family systems, religion, all that gets tied together into this very confusing knot and it's all interconnected within our own being and pulling that apart is very difficult. It takes a lot of time. And even as I was growing, deconstructing, moving through stages of faith, moving beyond where I was, I didn't have the emotional reactions to, I didn't have triggering traumas of old things. I didn't have the emotion because when I was growing and changing, I could just be like, oh, I'm just growing and changing. And I would feel something because I know it would put me at odds with my community, but it w- it wouldn't register as much emotionally. It wouldn't affect my nervous system in the same way it would for other people because my primary sense of belonging growing up wasn't the church. So it was like, I didn't grow up on the settlement. I was like a wanderer out there. They brought to the settlement of Bible college for two years. I'm like, oh, these, these people are great, but there's way more life out here and I'm quite comfortable continuing to move forward. So... I feel like I've always been, it's been a little easier. It's like the wheels of the spiral, you know, the have been greased up for me to keep growing because I haven't had as much or any like religious baggage to like, how do I unpeel this? How do I take it off? Because it's not in my bones the same way it is for people who like grew up with that real heavy handedness. Well, I'm so glad. Uh, it, it, there's so much liberation just in the sound of your voice. You just sound like a free man <laughs> in a way that I don't hear uh, very often. So I'm really grateful for that for you. Um, your your new book is called The Joy of Letting Go. And you just mentioned shutting down a church that you had poured your life into for 10 years. Did writing the book prepare you to do that? Are they... Is that all part of the same path or is that just a coincidence? Yeah, what's interesting is I actually wrote The Making of a Mystic at the end of 2020. 
And then I finished The Joy of Letting Go at the end of 2021. So actually when Making of a Mystic came out, this book was already... The Joy of Letting Go was done. And that winter, like into December, when I remember going up... There's actually woods in, on a mountain on the top of Oahu where I live. And there's this woodsy area I went up to to sit down and have this sort of ceremonial moment. Like I'm going to write the outro to the book and the first draft is done. And... I sat there writing the outro to the joy of letting go when I was just on the edge of making the decision to let go of the church that my wife and I planted and gave almost a decade of our life to. So I didn't plan for those two to work together. This book was just something I knew I had in me. But it's a fascinating thing for me to write that book as I was finishing. And now when I'm doing these interviews or talking to people and I say... And the joy, what, really what I'm saying to people is always trust the letting go because it always leads to more joy. And the same way I would tell people always trust the death of anything and everything that's getting in the way because it always leads to resurrection. So even now as we speak, I'm just on the other side of a massive form of letting go in my life. 10 years of you start something and you build it and it's your primary, you know, vocation and you're giving yourself to it. And then May 29th of this year was the last service we ever had. So I'm just past the edge of an old thing. I'm in the middle of letting go back in those liminal in between uncertain, unknowing spaces. And it's for me, it's cool because the joy of letting go doesn't just come when you're finally settled into the next thing. It's something that can hold you together even when you're in the middle of both things. So it's t- very timely and cool how it worked out, but wasn't planned from the beginning. About three years ago, my wife and I had a similar experience to the year that you've had. We shut down a church that had been going for only five years. It wasn't quite the same as your situation, but to me, that was almost traumatic in and of itself, just because my identity was so tied into the organization and, and the uh, that that community. You sound okay. H- has it been that easy for you? Or is am I missing something? You know, David Foster Wallace, and I write this in the beginning of the book, says everything I've ever let go of has claw marks on it. And what I want to say to people in the book is it doesn't have to be that way. The claw marks is the resistance. The claw mark is the avoidance of death. The claw mark is the part of you that wonders, is there actually more life after this? The claw marks is the part that says, I can't let go because that which I'm clinging on to defines some sense of who I believe I am. And I don't think any of those things, I don't think that's true. And I don't think we have to live in that space of resistance for so long or at all. And was the experience of the past year painful? Absolutely. Because letting go, acceptance, death, which are all connected, it always involves grief. And grieving is hard and it's painful. And last fall, my wife and I come into the decision, still trying to reopen the church, but really quickly realizing this isn't a rebuilding chapter. That's hard and you feel it and it's in your body and you know you can feel the griefs coming. You're coming to terms with the death. Like that's why once I once I knew it, I was like, when we start went to reopen the church last year, we thought it was a rebuilding, and very quickly I'm like, oh, we thought this was like a moment of new life, but actually this feels like a movement towards hospice care for the church. 
And that is always a painful journey. And I experienced tremendous amounts of pain and grief that come from that. But you can feel the pain without having to live with the resistance to the pain of something, the non-acceptance of the death, the refusal to accept what's happening. That, like all of the perennial teachers teach us, it's the resistance to suffering that keeps us stuck in suffering. You can feel pain without resisting it. That's why I tell people, you don't have to learn to enjoy pain, but you do have to learn to embrace it. That is one of the great mysteries of the non-dual mind is you can wholeheartedly take in and accept and embrace pain with the same open-handedness and open-heartedness that you do good things. That sounds impossible for people, but it's not. That's about acceptance. For me, the mystic is a person who lives with pure acceptance of reality for what it is as a whole, which then gets translated into the concrete situations at all times. So was there pain from the past year? Absolutely. But at the same time, I'm really happy with how things closed. I'm, I'm honestly really happy that it, that it did close down with where I'm at now. But it, but it was still hard. It was still painful. It was still long conversations with my wife and I. It was still announcing to the church. It was still all those things that come from funerals, that come from death, that come from grief. But acceptance is the thing that says I can hold this pain, let it exhaust through my body long enough and trust. Like the book says, there's more joy in life after this. Only once we've embraced the death wholeheartedly. You actually start towards the beginning of the joy of letting go. You say, I write with the audacious hope that in each chapter you will see peace requires letting go. Being present requires letting go. Joy requires letting go. Experiencing God and receiving love requires letting go. Creating requires letting go. Working for justice requires letting go. Acceptance requires letting go. Forgiveness requires letting go. Growing and evolving requires letting go. Inclusion requires letting go. Compassion requires letting go. The ability to keep going requires letting go. Owning your inner authority requires letting go. And taking risk requires letting go. What is it you want us to let go of? It's <laughs> a good question. So what Jason just read, the way the book's structured is, you know, there's a chapter on peace. There's a chapter on being present. There's a chapter on joy, all the things that, that he just read. So what I'm telling everybody is, in order to be at peace, there are things you have to let go of to access that peace. In order to be present, there are probably things you have to let go of in order to actually be fully present to the eternal now, the fullness, the incarnational, you know, whole of the moment. And that's how the book came about was over the past 10 years or whenever it was, I was just looking at people's lives and knowing my own journey, looking when people feel stuck, when people are frustrated, when people are angry. And so often people think it's a million other things and I could just see to the center of it and say, you know what, after all of the cursing at God and blaming and pity parties and rage and anger, which is all understandable because those are all things that arise in non-acceptance. I'd say eventually there's probably just something really hard you have to accept, which means there's something after that that painful you have to let go of. But once you do that, that's the mystery. Once you let go of the very thing you've been obsessed with, attached to, or cannot like disidentify from, that's actually where everything you want emerges from. You think it comes from clinging harder and forcing this. It actually comes from letting go of it. 
So each one of those is different. Like when you ask, what is it you want us to let go of? It depends on what exactly we're talking about. So for example, when we t- like the first chapter is about being present. If you talk about letting go and being present, most people would probably think, what does letting go have to do with being present? Right? And to me, that's an important conversation because in our culture, sometimes it feels like we've mastered everything except the ability to be here and present and awake and grateful. Like those are things you can't just artificially muster up. So in the chapter, one of the things I say is, the, well, the first thing we have to let go of in order to be present is any form of judgment, need to control or impulse to change or fix any part of the moment. Because when you need to fix something, you cannot be present. If you need to change someone, which I'm sure we've all had those moments where we're trying, you cannot be present. And when you try and control the moment, you cannot be present. So our inability to, if my mind is analyzing, judging, needing to fix, needing to correct that person, needing to move that book back, needing to tell my kid not to be so messy when they... If my mind needs to fix something in the moment or change it, I cannot be present to the wholeness of the moment, right? The great activist, (coughs) excuse me, and mystic Simone Weil said, the beautiful is that which we, is that which we cannot wish to change. So to be present to and grounded in the beauty of the present, you cannot have a need to change the present, Right. So like, I mean, it's when you see that to me, it's actually quite simple. That's one example of that person can't be present because they thought the moment was supposed to look different than what it was. They were supposed to behave differently. They were supposed to be more grateful. They were supposed to be more affirmative. My mom wasn't supposed to criticize me when I told her what I'm doing next or however that works for a person. And as long as the degree to which you are attached to the way you thought the moment was supposed to be, is the degree to which you will, un- you will be unable to be present to the way the moment is. How do you go from the first one to the second? By some form of letting go. So every chapter is like, you don't think letting go is connected with compassion or receiving love, but it is. Just beneath the surface is always this invitation of, to let go of something, to entrust our lives to the spirit in a fresh way. And all of a sudden it's like, all of the life we've desired, everything we wanted just starts to emerge naturally after the letting go. So who, when you're writing this book, who, who's the audience that you have in mind? Who did you write this book for? You know, one of my, a good friend of mine who's much more evangelical than I am, he was like, man, this book, and he, he read it for me and helped like edit and, and uh, read it for me, which I'm really grateful for. But he was like, you know, because he knows me and he jokes around with me. Well, you know, we have this ongoing joke where he's like, you know, Kevin doesn't baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. He baptizes them in the name of welcome, acceptance, and grace. I'm like, I could honestly do both. I'm quite comfortable with either one of those. <laughs> and, but I say that because even for somebody who's more evangelical, he's like, honestly, like this book is for everybody. And I say that because letting go is not a Christian thing. Letting go is just a human thing. Like there is no dogma. There's no belief in dogma or doctrine required to let go of your need to fix the moment in order to be more present to the joy of the moment. That's a different 
It's the depth of our life with God, and yet it transcends and is beyond simply whatever you happen to believe in any moment. So to me, the Christian should be the one who's the most prepared and ready and able to let go because the whole story we're a part of, of life, death, and resurrection, keeps saying after the death is always resurrection. And letting go always requires death. So if you're a Christian and the story you're saying is death and resurrection, you should be primed to be a person who is able and ready and willing. And you don't need to have claw marks on everything you let go of because you're trusting every time I do this, the spirit carries me through the unknown of death and uncertainty to the other side. So, but at the same time, you, there's there's no religious requirement for letting go. There's not. It's not about beliefs and dogma and doctrine. It's about the internal surrendering and releasing and dropping and unguarding our heart and uncoiling and a falling into the fullness of God, whether anybody consciously believes in God or not. So, to me, letting go is just beneath the surface of everyone's life to lead them to more life in the Christ who holds all things together, regardless of their religious orientation. Well, I love the book. I think it's so liberating. And I think you've introduced a really powerful idea that if we could, if we can be present and if we can let go of the things that separate us from all of those things that you laid out there at the beginning of the book, I I think the world becomes a better place for all of us. And it, it may not be, I, I, I've never had much success trying uh, trying to be a better Christian or trying to be a better human, but there's a lot of things that I could let go of that I find myself being better by letting go. And this book uh, reminds us to do that over and over again. Would you read a passage of the book that's meaningful to you? All right, so somewhere in the somewhere in the intro, I don't know exactly where it is. I'm going to read this section. And I write, here's where I begin. Virtually every time we, f- we are angry, feel stuck, and are struggling to move forward, of course, after all of the rage, blame, name-calling, threats, pity parties, and explosive outrage at God and life itself subsides, eventually there's probably just something we need to let go of. We fight, we resist, and we desperately try to believe it is a million other easier things than the one thing it almost always ends up being. We need to do some letting go. Sucks. I know. We'd rather get angrier at injustice and rage against the machine harder. We'd rather just show up at the next event and sing louder. We'd rather read another book about letting go and try to figure it out in our minds. We wish we could simply move faster, work harder, or become more determined. But after all of those impulses fire off in our body, and each of those desires race by our stream of consciousness, eventually there's probably something painful we need to accept, which means there is something else we need to let go of. Like I said, sucks. And yet, no matter how much it sucks or how painful it is, what we always discover on the other side of letting go is a new beginning. Every time you let go, you begin again. And every time you begin again, a part of you is born again. Beautiful. 
Friends, the book is The Joy of Letting Go, the author Kevin Sweeney. I really encourage you to get a copy of this book. We're going to have a link in the show notes. Uh, it will be available at all the usual places. Uh, we've kind of adopted an independent bookstore uh, for the show that is Hearts and Minds Books in Dallastown, Pennsylvania. I know they will have copies as well. If you'd like to order one from a local independent bookstore, uh, you can get one from them and they do ship worldwide. You can also get it, of course, from Amazon, Target, Walmart, Barnes & Noble, all the usual suspects. Uh, Kevin, I'd love to know what's next for you. Uh, after wrapping up a 10-year stint as pastor, where do things go from here for you? Yeah, one... In the practical sense, after all organization and stuff that I've done, I'm going to start writing my third book in January when I go home. And that's about the cosmic Christ and the concrete Jesus. So I'm really excited to, to get to, to work through that. So writing, my wife and I do coaching through an organization called Caneo, which is a healing and retreat center in Puerto Rico that focuses on healing for burnt out, traumatized clergy. So is this Dan White's organization? Yes. Or the one he's connected to? All yep. right, cool. My wife's on the board there and she's a coach and I'm starting off as an apprentice coach and hope to continue coaching with them. So we've been connected with Dan for like 10 years. So coaching, writing, but honestly, there's also a larger picture of I don't know. You know, there's possibilities and other opportunities ahead. But I'm, like I say, in the joy of letting go, I'm in the middle of the space right now that is the very reason why people avoid letting go. Because there's this liminal, in-between, betwixt, you said no to the old, you haven't said yes to the new, staring in the face of uncertainty. And the, that experience of where I'm at right now is why people avoid it. And yet I'm here and I'm still saying, no, it's always joy after the letting go. And I myself am in a totally new journey where I haven't moved into the next thing yet. So I'm in staring into an unknown future right now. And that is something the mystics know is how to befriend the unknown and be okay with that. Wow. Awesome. Well, I'm really looking forward to uh, folks getting a hold of this book and engaging the conversation of the joy of letting go. And I'm super excited about that new book that you just mentioned about <laughs> the cosmic Christ and the concrete Jesus. Yeah. Um, it, it sounds uh, like you're just like picking up a, a train of thought from like Richard Rohr and just mm. maybe putting some foundation to it. That mm. sounds really good. Mm. Yeah, I'm looking forward that. to that. So um, man, just keep going. And thank you so much for your time today. Uh, friends, again, the books are The Making of a Mystic, The Joy of Letting Go. Kevin also has a podcast, The Church Needs Therapy. And, and Lord knows that's been true in my life. Uh, so please, please check out these resources that Kevin has available for you. We'll have notes in the show notes. I'm sorry, links in the show notes for all of that. Kevin, thanks so much for your time today, man. It's been great. Yeah, man, this was great. Thanks, Jason. 